Hey guys, and welcome to the Low Key Podcast. I know it's been a while, um, but today we got a good episode for you. We talk with Joe from La Barba Coffee, and we talk about what the name means, what it's like growing up in Salt Lake City culture, um, what started Joe's love for coffee, how La Barba sources coffee, what they do, what what uh, what importers they use, and uh, all the other fun coffee stuff. So, like always, if you want to know what we're doing, if you know if you want to know what's going on with Low Key, go like and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We're also doing a giveaway this week with Cirque Coffee Roasters. Um, so, like always, keep it nice, keep it easy. Keep it low-key. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Low-Key. I'm here with Joe Evans from La Barba. Um, kind of an interesting name. Kind of tell me what where you guys got that name and uh, how that happened and what, what it means too. Yeah. <laughs> one of our uh, one of our founders, Levi Rogers, had a fairly hefty beard when he a hefty hefty beard when he and um, he and a roommate decided to convert a, uh, a home like a grill or patio grill into like a homemade roaster and he started buying some beans from Sweet Maria's online. And uh, roasting and delivering via bicycle. So oh, they nice. thought it would be funny because he was just a big bearded guy out on a bike to call it La Barba. A uh, couple of months later, it turned out that it could turn into a real business. And so yeah. he and a, and a handful of friends got together. They all pooled all their money. It was less than 10 grand. I'm not sure exactly how much. Bought like a used toper roaster, you know, like mm. nothing super fancy, but, but something they could get going on. And... Um, they, they renamed the business Charming Beard at that point, <laughs> which kind of, you know, <clears throat> meant the same thing. You know, they were filing the official business license and everything. And they uh, one of the guys was in business school and had some branding stuff that matched that name. And, you know, the goal was to be in farmer's markets, things like that. And so yeah. I mean, we thought it felt, or they thought at the time that it felt really good. Uh, as... La Barba started to grow and scale. So the, the, the co-founders at that point were Josh Rosenthal and, and Levi Rogers, and then there were a handful of friends who invested. Um, and so they stayed on as primary operators. Uh, and as La Barba grew, it was the first wholesaler of specialty-grade coffee in Salt Lake. So essentially first third-wave yeah. wholesaler. And as they grew, they realized that they could be something more than just like a card at the farmer's market, which was an amazing start for us. But uh, they they rebranded back to La Barba uh, a handful of years ago, maybe five, five or six years ago now. We were founded okay. in 2012, uh, and so oh. they re- rebranded back to that, but still is a very small company. But it just, the name La Barba, you know, it, it sounds a little more elegant, but it also lets us give a little wink and a nod to the past. And, yeah. you know, we're never going to take ourselves too seriously, but, but it gives us a chance to have a very elegant brand identity and things. So, so it's kind of this, like, two, two-pronged thing. You know, we get to be a little sarcastic and funny secretly, but also present something really beautiful, uh, you know, at the face. So. Mm-hmm. 
That's really cool. That's funny that it's called the beard. Yeah, yeah I know the beard. You <laughs> it, know, it sounds like something so much more fancier than I, that. I know. I mean, it, it really does. I mean, you know, unless of course you speak Spanish, like a good portion of the yeah. country does. In which case, they're confused as to why we're not a barber shop. But you know. <laughs> but I mean, it, it really was. You know, just just kind of tongue in cheek about Levi's beard when when we started. And I mean, really, that was at the height. This was like 2012, 2011. I think he started roasting 2011, and then we officially formed just Charming Beard in 2012. Um, but he was, you know, I mean, it was it was at the height of the beard trend, you know, and, the, yeah. and the, the hipster barista, you know, and so I think it was just kind of tongue in cheek with that a little bit. And then we didn't want to be too pegged to that too long, you know. Yeah. But. Yeah, I'm still trying to grow a beard. <laughs> I, uh, I was embarrassed. I was, I was an early, early, uh, <laughs> Early on the beard front, I was super embarrassed in like sixth grade because I was having to shave, you know. <laughs> and then, and then uh, I landed my first barista job in nineteen ninety six. I think I was a senior in high school. Whoa! And um, yeah, I've been doing this a while. <laughs> and uh, and I found that getting up early just made it hard to shave. And so that's my theory behind the entire bearded barista culture: is it's literally like these are guys that are getting up way too early and they don't they don't have time or energy to shave you know? yeah <laughs> that's funny so so what what got you into coffee or made you fall in love with coffee I think I fell in love with cafe culture before I fell in love with coffee I mean you know we're in Salt Lake I grew up Mormon you know I didn't I I, I rebelled against that pretty early but I didn't grow up with coffee around the house or anything and so it was very much an acquired taste for me early on I, I can't say that there was a lot more than just dark roast going on in the 90s in Salt Lake City either. But I, um, you know, the, the counterculture in the city has always been very paired with, you know, food culture in the city. And so, like, coffee shops were just like a bastion for, you know, angry teenagers to go and yell about their parents. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it was just like, that's where we'd meet up to go skate when I was younger. It's where we'd meet up to go clubbing as I got a little bit older, which I don't even think people club anymore. This is, I'm showing my age right now. <laughs> you know, we'd meet up to go to a bar and eventually, you know, and so I, I really, I really loved this idea. You know, I'd hang out, skip school, hang out with friends and like play chess when I was in high school and, you know, and so this idea, I, there were always such interesting people and interesting conversations and coffee is a stimulant, you know, stimulates conversation. And, and I kind of fell in love with all of that. Um, long before I really fell in love with coffee itself. And it was really through, I have a pretty obsessive, you know, personality. Mm. And, uh, and so as I worked from one barista job to another, you know, I mean, I, I was working in a small local shop and then it decided to close down and I ended up a, you know, Borders bookstore. I did another small local shop. I did a pretty hefty stint at Starbucks. I mean, I've been kind of all across the map. Yeah. But at every single one of them, that that kind of, you know, community that builds around a shop existed. And I, I loved that. And so I got really obsessed with the processes. Um, I loved pulling a shot. And I loved steaming milk. And I loved, like, trying to be better and better and better at that. Before there were even necessarily the same standards that exist right now, or at least not, not in our market, there weren't. I just wanted to be better at it. And so... Sorry, our coffee's arriving. <laughs> um, so, 
so yeah, I, uh, you know, through that, I started wanting to taste more coffees, try a lot of different coffees, and um, I had a my wife's best friend um, lived in Chicago. She went to the uh, Art Institute in Chicago, oh, that's and cool. and uh, was doing a volunteer program that Intelligentsia sponsored, and th- so we're talking like two thousand four. 2005, you know, this is when Intelli was still a pretty small blip on the map of, of coffee, you know, in the yeah. world. Um, and she started sending me, sending us some coffee every once in a while. And uh, and, and it just kind of changed the way, I, I remember getting the, I think it was the Tres Santos, Colombia, I think they still buy from that estate. And it was just such a different coffee experience for me than what I'd had before. And I thought, there is so much more to this than I've understood for the last seven or eight years as a barista. And so that really started the dive in for me. And so that was right about the same time that like Blue Bottle and, and Ritual were kind of blowing up in San Francisco. Uh, Food and Wine published their first article about, you know, some of the best boutique coffee roasters. They didn't even really call it Third Wave that much back then. Yeah. Um, and so I started getting samples from each of those, you know, that, that, that short list, it was like Counterculture, Intelligentsia, Doma, I can't remember who else was on that list, but it was, it was a fairly short list, five or six roasters, and, and I just kind of like, from there, just became really passionate about just finding better and better quality. It was happening to me in other walks of life, too, I was really like, I, I was in my you know, mid to late 20s, I was on like a food discovery, you know, like mm. really starting to experience food in different ways, you know, and so it just kind of all married up. And at the same time, craft brewing was seeing like a kind of second wave push here in Salt Lake. And, That's cool. You know, so I mean, there, was a, there were a lot of things just all coming together. Our food culture was really starting to mature for the first time. We were starting to see some really nice upscale farm to table type cafes and things like that. And so it just kind of, all came together uh, right about the same time I had an opportunity to, to kind of branch out and open my own shop. So I was, I was finishing up a degree in psychology and I was not wanting to pursue that as a career. And yeah. so, so I had this opportunity uh, and, I, and I founded a coffee shop and it was one of the first two shops in Salt Lake to do specialty, specialty coffee. And, uh, and then that, you know, I mean, that was just like a, my obsessive nature of like, I've got to be the best at whatever I do and not in a competitive, like I'm going to tear anybody else down, but just personally, I always want to be better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, f- I founded the shop back in town, 2006 and, uh, remained primary owner and operator for most of the life of it. And then the last year and a half I had it, uh, I brought in investors and we didn't really necessarily see eye to eye on everything. And, um. But it was, it was called No Brow Coffee, and uh, that was the first place outside of Levi delivering to friends on bicycles that sold Charming Beard Coffee. And so mm-hmm. I got to be part of this culture of this company from its very uh, origin, even though I didn't really come into the company. I, I came into La Barba uh, just, just shy of five years ago, I think. Four years. Four years ago. Okay. Uh, 2015. Uh, the fall of 2015 is when I came into La Barba. Sorry, that was a big, long sentence. No, I <laughs> it was a never-ending paragraph. <laughs> I'm going to take a pull at some... So, <clears throat> how, like, seeing the Salt Lake City coffee scene, how have you seen it change? How have you seen it grow? How, how I, is it? 
it's been it's been awesome to watch. I mean, honestly, you know, when when I opened up, there was a little when I opened up Nobrow, there was a little shop called Cafe de Bola, and he was sourcing. He wouldn't he wouldn't tell anybody where he was sourcing his beans from. Honestly, you if you can get John on the podcast, that guy is he's amazing. Like he's he's like the most obsessive technical knowledge based barista I've ever met in my entire life. Okay, um, he's. He can be a little bit... I think some people find him a little bit much to take on, but I, I absolutely adore the guy. But he had opened a shop. He wouldn't tell us who he was using. You know, he was very, very... You know, like, he couldn't trust his shots to an employee, so he and his wife have been primary operators since day one. Mm. If they want to go out of town, they just close, you know. So so he had opened about six months before, and then I opened uh, No Brow, and at first with No Brow, I was serving exclusively Intelligentsia. Um, eventually, John branched out and started roasting his own coffee, and he's a phenomenally good roaster, but has never been interested in pursuing wholesale. He just roasts for his own shop. And uh, and Nobrow eventually grew into multi roaster. It was just um, as as Intelligentsia grew, I, I wanted to know you know, and as I traveled more, I wanted to bring in more. So I was kind of the first multi roaster shop in Salt Lake. But along the way, you know, a lot of other shops have kind of cropped up, and I feel like right now I can't even keep up with roasteries. You know, you had uh, La Barba slash Charming Beard founding in 2012 as somebody who would do wholesale with uh, specialty roasting. Um, then you had places like the Rose Establishment. There was a place called Bevelo that was briefly around that served fantastic coffee. That guy, I think, is a, an equipment tech in L.A. now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really blown up. The Rose Establishment was early on. They were with uh, Four Barrel and then whatever that's rebranded to these days. And, you know, and now now I'd say, you know, it's, it's like every couple of months I read about another roaster opening up. I mean, I remember those early challenges in, like, 2006 when... I couldn't get 25 people through the door and now you know I'm I'm you know seeing shops open in the suburbs that are doing $1000 a day and so it's yeah I mean it's That's just insane. you know the coffee culture is just and the drive for quality I think that whether whether people remain Mormon or not I think there's a cultural value here and it might stem from the LDS faith of authenticity people want something quality and something good you know like like, they really, really get behind local companies when a local company opens up in this town. And so, I mean, there's so much support out there in the world. You know, to see, I would say the big three specialty roasters right now are Public, Blue Copper, and, and us. Uh, but to see little places, you know, little little in-house roasters opening up out in Sandy and stuff like that is really cool to watch. I, I literally feel like the last year there's been four or five roasters opened up in Salt Lake that I can't even name off the top of my head. Kings Peak, Great Basin, you know. That's crazy. Yeah. So so it's cool. There's a great little place up in Park City uh, called Pink Elephant. They yeah, do, I checked them out. Yeah, they do a great job. Um, they were working off of a used toper for a long time, too. I always felt bad for him because I know all the shortcomings that we had when we had that roaster. <laughs> you know, comes on really hot, hard to stretch development. But, you know, I think they just... I can't remember if they just got a Diedrich or a Probot. We've, we've been roasting on a Diedrich for quite a few years now. Nice. So. Yeah. So, yeah. Kind of describe um, how, you, how you get, like, uh, the beans and, and how your relationship to, I guess, farmers or I don't, yeah. I don't know how you... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so 
So I personally am uh, do some of the quality control and everything. Uh, recently, I've been moved into the position of president of the company. Our CEO uh, and co-founder, Josh Rosenthal, was CEO and president for a long time. Uh, Levi was lead roaster uh, and founder. Um, but uh, Josh has been pursuing a lot of other uh, capital ventures and wanted to... And then also is really focused on growth for Labarba, so he's asked me to come in and op- take a lot of the presidential and, and day-to-day stuff off their hands since I've been a barista for a million years. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, our, our uh, operations director, Thomas Warmoth, and our, uh, our, our lead roaster, Marion, um, work together to, to source coffee, and we cast a pretty, pretty wide net. We do buy direct from a handful of farms. Um, since we're still a relatively small roaster, buying an entire container of coffee can get a little bit rough. Yeah. So we work with we work with a number of importers that we trust really implicitly. I mean, early on, we worked almost exclusively with uh, Sustainable Harvest. So, I mean, we're working with absolute quality groups, but we won't work with anybody where we can't get documentation of every step along the chain on that coffee. You know, yeah. I mean, our... Our focus is constantly for more and more transparency. So um, you know we've you know we've we've worked with Ally and, and uh, we work with quite a few importers, and we really do try and reach out direct when we can. Yeah. Uh, but you know, oftentimes we're only buying a couple thousand pounds. I know that sounds like a lot, of only a couple thousand pounds. But you know, it's not often we're able to buy an entire crop or commit to an entire crop of coffee. Um, yeah. We, we have done that with uh, the Mujeres Cafeterias Colombia uh, Cooperative. Um, we use uh, their coffee quite a bit. That's a women's co-op in, in Colombia that, that really, that we've developed a relationship through uh, Sustainable Harvest with, but we've been able to buy, uh, commit to full crops on them because we've used it in so many coffees. And, That's you know, awesome. So we, we do that a little bit. And our goal is always, it's, it's, there's a tension, you know? I mean, we do want to make coffee accessible to as many people as we can. And you know that price is a, a huge hurdle for a lot of people with coffee, but we will not compromise on cupping scores or ethics in that sourcing process. And so, yeah. you know, most of our coffees, that's not much of a, a problem. You know, I mean, when we're buying, when we're buying coffees that are cupping at 85, 86, and we're selling them for 14 bucks a 12 ounce bag, you know, we're, we're well within the ability to, but, but, you know, we do, we do try and provide one coffee that's kind of geared toward more restaurant use that's, you know, we've got to watch the bottom line on really tightly. And so making sure that we can get high quality coffees that were ethically sourced, that the farmers were adequately compensated, compensated for, you know, can, can get a little tough. And oftentimes for that blend, despite being our least expensive coffee, we'll commit more time and resource to that to just make sure that, that it matches. But yeah, I mean, we are, it, it almost goes without saying, I feel like these days in specialty coffee that, you know, we're, we're committed to sustainable growth practices. We're committed to natural growth practices. We're committed to adequate compensation to farmers. Uh, and, and we're committed to, I think one of the things that differentiates us is when we think of this, we don't just think backward on the source, we think forward as well. So mm-hmm. we're committed to providing good wages and benefits for our employees. I mean, we're a small company, 
I'd love to see us grow our wages quite a bit more, but I mean, we were able to start providing insurance last year for our employees, wow. despite being, a, you know, we're not at the 49 employee threshold where it's required, you know, and, yeah. and we've uh, been able to provide pretty decent, you know, wage compensation for management and things like that to help with retention. And, and so, I mean, and then we, we try and extend that value to the people we serve as well, especially on our wholesale side, you know, we try and provide, go above and beyond on service and support uh, on that front too. So, you know, I mean, we really do believe that it is, it is from seed to cup that it really matters, you know, and, and I think a lot of people focus so much of their time on from seed to roastery, which is one of the most difficult and most important parts, places we can invest that time and energy but I think that sometimes they forget about taking care of their own as well. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of the equation, you know. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's impressive. Like, I don't know a lot of shops that provide insurance yeah. for, I, for some of their employees. Being, being a wholesaler primarily. So we started out wholesale, farmer's market and wholesale. Uh, and then grew into, you know, we have two retail locations. We've had a couple of other, you know... Operations we've run for people over the years and things, but you know we have two retail locations. But our wholesale portfolio is pretty pretty robust, and that's I think really what helps us do that. That and we haven't shied away from things like putting our coffee in grocery stores. You know, like yeah. like we're we're in Harmons, which is a local grocery chain that works with Associated Foods. You know, and we're in the local Whole Foods, and you know I know a lot of people stress out a lot about what happens to their coffee when it leaves their hands, you know, and we, we feel that too. But, you know, I mean, our goal is to really grow an amazing company, you know, and, and continue to grow an amazing culture here in Salt Lake. And, and we can't do that unless we have the financial base to do that. And so, you know, being the first high-end coffee in a local grocery chain with, you know, 18 stores made a huge difference and we sell a ton of coffee out of there i mean and yeah. it's it's awesome and we're not diminishing the coffee we're not selling them worse coffee than we're selling on our own shelves you know the it might sit on the shelf a little bit longer but we've been really diligent about quality control testing and making sure that after three months we are expiring in three months that after three months it still tastes good you know and it it does you yeah. know i mean we our roasters do a really good job with their their quality control and, and development on the on the coffees and, and we've got we've got something that we're really proud of and, and we feel comfortable letting letting out into the world in that way and so I think those you know the the move into grocery uh, just pushing really hard on wholesale we're in most of the fine dining restaurants in Salt Lake we're in some of the specialty markets and things so I mean I think that kind of stuff is where financially we can be. Or, or appear a little bigger than we are, yeah. you know, and, and provide a little bit more, you know. Because I think right now we're roughly 30 employees, you know, across the board. And, but we're moving close to 2,000 pounds a week in various forms, and so... Yeah. So, yeah. In, in, in your opinion, what... Uh, in, I don't know if you want to answer this question, but how, how hard is it um, to be, like, make, making being a barista a career... You know, I feel like I just through absolute dumb luck, <laughs> yeah. like like managed managed to make a career in barista. It's something I talk about a lot, and we talk about management a lot. 
because you know you do you do move into other markets, other countries specifically, you know, where they have, you know, where, where somebody is a barista for life, or they're a pastry chef for life, or pastry, you know, or just a baker for life, and and there are certain, you know, government structural supports that help make that happen, and we don't, you know, we don't have things like guilds with guaranteed wages in the United yeah. States. Um, and, you know, honestly, with, within our company, I think there's a million different opinions on that, you know, but, but we don't, we don't have that. So how, how we create a, I mean, I think our best bet for creating a company that can give somebody a career as a barista is to find upward trajectory. And I think you've seen that with some of the bigger specialty roasters. I mean, I'm, you know, like with, with groups, early pioneers like like counterculture or intelligentsia or even stumptown you know there really was they they grew on this wholesale side and on this marketing outside of their own area side in a way that gave them the ability that when a, a barista topped out and what they could do as a barista they could become a sales rep or a uh, an account manager or you know move into roasting in an ever-growing roasting field that that kind of yeah. stuff I, but it I, I think I'm a lifetime barista because I'm stubborn. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, it's, uh, it really was dumb luck. I mean, I just, like I said, I, I right, right before I finished college, I opened a shop, and, and I should someday go back and finish my degree. I literally have, like, a semester left. You know, probably less than a full, full semester of credits left. But I, uh, I opened the shop always thinking, oh, I'll just get back to school in a minute, and you know, I'd been a barista for about 10 years at that point when I opened my shop. And then, and then I, uh, you know, I eventually parted with the investors. Uh, they got into roasting production. They re- that's actually where, where Blue Copper came from. That used to be No Brow. And so, um, you know, the investors restructured things. They renamed it. Uh, they got into production and wholesale as well. Um, doing a great job. I love, I love Patrick over there. He was the uh, namesake for, for Blue Copper. He was doing farmer's market roasting, much like La Barba had very early in its stage and merged with, uh, with the company. Yeah, post, uh, post, post my own shop, because I kind of for a moment didn't know at that point, you know, I was in my late 30s, I, I left a business that I ran for nine years, you know, that I founded and ran for nine years. Uh, I ended up doing some fine dining bartending and a little bit of restaurant management and beverage work and restaurant. And, and um, I was really good friends with, with Josh and Levi, but Josh, you know, I, I sat down with Josh, uh, with La Barba and, and said, you know, I, I really do want to get back into the coffee industry. He's like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to, I want to have the flexible flexibility of kind of selling on the back, on the back end. So I followed that same trajectory. I came in to head up the wholesale accounts, uh, uh management and sales for La Barba when I, when I started in La Barba about, you know, back in 2015. And so, um, I, I think that's the I think that's the, tra- the trajectory. I think I think there's a huge hole in the world right now for for education with baristas too. I think there's a there's a a career path from barista to educator that we see a little bit of, and we're trying to grow within our own company. But I, I think that that's that's probably a, a great area for baristas to grow into as well. Um, but I think the more we can start to find ways to get better compensation for baristas, uh, you know, raising wages, things like that, which which is hard. I mean, that also means at some point coffee costs more, you know. Yeah. Um, 
the better the better it gets. I mean, I think when somebody specializes in a skill, you, you can't match 20 years experience doing the same thing over and over, no matter how much knowledge somebody has, you know? And, I mean, sometimes it's a problem. Sometimes you can't break bad habits after 20 years either. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like I'm finally at a point as a barista where I want to let young people be more passionate and learn a lot more, but, but there really is something like I can... I can dial a shot without thinking about it. And I think that just takes, and that's not arrogance on my part at all. That's just, you know, 23, 24 years of doing it in a million different settings. It's just made yeah. second nature. And I just, I wish we could find a way to value service industry jobs like baristas a little bit more. I mean, sometimes it's not even financial compensation. I think sometimes people just think of it, you know, culturally, we think of it, this is a job you do in college and then you grow out of it. And and I don't think it has to be. I think you're way better at anything you commit your entire life to. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's cool, though. There's this younger generation. I mean, we've got a barista who's been studying, you know, uh, I don't know what he studies in school, but he helped teach a coffee class. Uh, you know, the, wow. we, had, we had an employee that was a professor that would teach a class. Uh, he was a, one of our roasters. He's moved to a different university out of state now. Uh, but this kid, he did that. I mean, he views his career as a coffee scientist, you know. And so, I mean, there's there's that realm, too. We're just scratching the surface on what we know about coffee. Mm-hmm. I mean, the coffee industry is, what, like a thousand years old, yeah. you know. And uh, and and realistically, as as an actual, you know, what we think of it now, it's a it's hundred years old. And you think high-end specialty, and, and it's really, you know, in its infancy, you know. I mean, it, I think the concept of exclusive specialty sourcing started in the late 90s. I mean, you look at any other culinary industry, and it's like, I, I mean, how long has French culinary cuisine been an established industry, which which created fine dining? You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's been at least since the Renaissance, if not before. You know, I mean, alcohol production goes back thousands of years. You know, I mean, and so... And even, like, craft alcohol goes back to pre-prohibition and craft brewing goes, you know, for for beer goes back a long way. So, I mean, you know, coffee's just in its infancy. There's so much that we aren't doing in coffee that we can be. And I think there's so much potential for baristas to find a niche and really kind of move forward, you know. Yeah. That's cool. But, yeah, you know. Um, Kind of describe... um, some of the coffees you guys have um, that you're displaying and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I feel like we're right in a shoulder season where, where we're running low on, you know, I mean, we source most of our coffees seasonally. So so we don't, we're not, we're not ever using anything that's past about nine months from harvest. Um, and if we do, it's for very intentional reasons. We'll be like, oh, there is something in this aged coffee that lends a particular X factor to this blend. Uh, but that's an infrequent thing. But right now, I feel like we're just on the cusp. We we buy uh, we buy from uh, the Guatemala Manos estate um, over and over and over. We have a couple of coffees that we just every year are so good, and we're super excited. The new crop is stuck on a boat somewhere right now. We just ran out of our old crop, okay. and the old crop was the best it had ever been. And the new crop, we when we copped it, was super super good. So that should be. That should be landing real soon. Um, 
I mean, it's it's a it's a classic Guatemalan. It's very chocolatey, but it's got this like fruit juice kind of undertone. But it doesn't push bright notes or acidic. It pushes really like smooth and juicy, you know. Uh, and then we've got I mentioned the Colombia Mujeres. We work with them all the time. That's an outstanding, super classic Colombian coffee. It's got a little brightness to it, but it's really chocolatey and nice. Uh, you're drinking the last of an Ethiopia Yergacheffi. Um, which I absolutely adored that coffee. I mean, it's not like it, it's not like natural processed Ethiopias are rare in the coffee world, and we move back and forth between natural and washed on our African coffees quite a bit. Um, we were cupping. I my my time has taken me out of cuppings as much. I love cupping coffee, but it used to be I'd get into one or two of them a week. And, uh, you know, be very, very much a part of that. And now it's like at best I'm getting into a couple a month. Um, but I know we've cupped quite a few. We've, I, I can't remember which Ethiopia we're landing, but we'll have a new Ethiopia landing really soon. Um, nice. We've had a really beautiful uh, Burundi coffee. I think that's getting a little slim in inventory right now. So, I mean, we're always in constant flux on this. Usually we're sitting on... We have some stable blends. Yeah, I mean, obviously the components that go into it. Once again, it's all seasonal. The components are changing all the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're really trying to blend for consistency on those. Um, but, but you know, those those are there. You know, we've got the, uh, the Anchor Blend, which is kind of, it's, it's our lowest price coffee. Um, honestly, we look at that like, what if, our internal conversation was like, what if we could make a diner coffee that didn't suck? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, so like that's what we're really looking for in that. We want like kind of a medium to light body, but with like a classic kind of like little bit of roastiness and a classic bite. But we're pushing really light roast on the coffees that are going into that. And we somehow just keep accidentally landing on the perfect marriage of coffees that do that. We've got a house blend that's really just where we highlight, you know, it's blending some of our stable, some of our staple coffees, you know, like the... The Colombia, the Guatemala, things like that are generally going to go in there. When those go out of season, we're going to plug in. So the the house blend it will change a little bit more. It's a little more dynamic. Uh, we've got the uh, Hulahi Espresso, which that goes back to our charming beard days. <laughs> like, uh, so, so a Hulahi is a type of Hawaiian beard. So there was a period when we were charming beard and at the farmer's market where every blend was named after a different beard style. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, so, and even sometimes our single origins would have beard references, you know. So, I mean, it was just... And as we rebranded back to La Barba, we left the, we left the Hulahi name intact. In, in I'm not sure. I don't know that it'll that the name will survive the life of the company, but the philosophy behind that espresso will. That's our house espresso. We we always want approachability, so we have like a medium level of development on that. We're always looking at three or four beans, usually a little bit of a natural process in there, mostly Latin American coffees, and we want toffee and peanut brittle and you know, milk chocolate and caramel, nougat, you know, we're looking for those types of flavors coming out of that. Yeah. So that'll vary a little bit, but that one, being in as many shops as it is, we really try and keep super consistent. And then we've got our Noche Oscuro, which is the darkest roast we do. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we really decided that, you know, while... All of us appreciate terroir as much as we do in the industry. Yeah. You know, not every end user does. And and we wanted to bring dignity to the idea of a darker roast. It's not a second crack, crack coffee. It's not, it is not dark by industry dark standards. It's dark by third wave coffee snob standards, you yeah. know. Um, and, and that one, once again, you know, 
it's kind of like the anchor blend. We almost put more effort into finding what coffees plug into that because we have a very, very specific idea of what we want out of it. And we have to be really careful. You know, not every coffee takes heat as well as another coffee. And so we're pushing development 5 or 6% longer on most of the coffees in there. And we're pushing temp 5 degrees or so hotter, you know. Yeah. And so to give it that greater solubility, more body, that kind of smoky smoothness without being really smoky. But we're looking to do that without char and without that weird alcohol kind of, you know, off flavor that comes with a lot of dark roast coffees. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that was a really long answer for these. We have a handful of coffees that are kind of our, our, uh, our staples. <laughs> and then the single origins just, the, you know, we, we cycle through them so fast, sometimes I can't even keep, keep up. Sometimes I'll, I'll walk into the warehouse and ask for a coffee that I swear we've only had for like three weeks. And, uh, well, that happened to Kenya recently. I mean, we blew through an entire... We thought we were committing to about three months of Kenya, and we blew through it in three weeks, you know? Dang. And that coffee was phenomenal. It tasted like strawberry jam. You know? Wow. Like, it was so good. Um, but, I mean, that was it. You know, we... You know, and it was a... It was a fairly expensive bag for the shelf. I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't breaking the bank. You know, we will occasionally commit to kind of more reserve-level coffee, you know, once or twice a year we'll bring in something that we really think is special that really pushes pushes prices up well well above 20 bucks for a bag, you know, for a small portion. But, wow. But, you know, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I need to get a little, like, snippet from the roastery on what's, what's coming up because I feel like it's just about everything that I'm in love with right now is just right on the tail end of, of inventory. And so... Yeah. But, but, I mean, that seems to be pretty common in, like late spring, early summer, right? You know, I mean, a lot of crops are, are landing in July, you know, and so we, we always feel like we get this big boost of new coffees in July, and so... That's awesome. You know. Yeah. What, it, what advice would you give to someone that wants to start up a coffee shop or um, be in the coffee business? Don't go in as blind as I did. <laughs> I, I, had no, I had no business opening a business. No, I mean, I think learn as much as you can. Like, you know... There, there's a lot of growth in coffee, and, and if you can really, I mean, you know, there, there's two two tracks. I mean, you know, if you can get a great barista job with a great company where there's room for growth, don't sell yourself short on the idea of growing with that con- company if your dream had been to open a shop, because in a lot of ways, you might find yourself in a position where you can do that within that company itself. I mean... Yeah. You know, I loved the entrepreneurial... I can't even say the word today. This morning, I drank a little last night. (laughs) Uh, My brother-in-law's in in town. Uh, But, you know, I loved that chase of new business. Um, But I I now work for a company where I get to do that with huge levels of support. You know, like like I'm not going in alone on that now. I'm going in and, and we're driving culture together in a collaborative way that's it's pretty amazing. And, and, you know, getting to put a beautiful, you know, high-end specialty shop in a shopping mall that's been struggling for quite a few years and and see it just thrive and succeed has been every bit as exciting as, you know, opening my own shop and doing doing my own thing. I, but you know, for going out for going out on your own, I think I think stay stay true to your vision but be willing to learn. You know, like you don't want to get so stuck in doing the way things the way that you've always done them, 
that eventually the industry passes you by. And I see that. I see that happen a lot. You know, somebody will be the best coffee on the planet in the mid-90s, and the industry shifts, and here we are in, like, you know, 2019, and, and that shop's still, and they're successful in what they do, but they're still doing it exactly the same way they've always done it. I think that, you know, as a barista trying to grow into the industry, being willing to be humble enough to learn from other people instead of assuming you know you know i mean yeah. and, and whether that's attending conferences at the you know at the specialty coffee associations convention every year or you know i mean there's great keynote speakers or just you know when you go into a new shop because i think you should work in a lot of shops before you should branch out and do your own learn yeah. learn what everybody does right and what they do wrong and then try and bring that all together and and do it your own way um but, but yeah, I mean, I think that, that being humble and willing to learn, I, I, I can't say the number of baristas that have come in and fought me on the way that I've tried to teach them to do coffee because they learned the right way somewhere else. And, and there, there isn't a right way or a wrong way these days. We're, we're an industry in our infancy, but, um, you know, we're, I try and breed the idea of consistency. I think the other thing... And I'd say my biggest pet peeve in specialty coffee is is lack of customer service. Like, mm-hmm. like you can, if you ever wonder why some like absolute garbage, disgusting little shop has been around forever, and you go in and you can't stand the coffee, it's because they've gotten to know their regulars, they're kind to strangers, and they've created a culture. Like, I think that there was a ten year push into coffee quality. I'd say it was about a 10-year push. I feel like right around 2008, in the broader U.S. culture, yeah. high-end specialty really took off. And and I think that they forgot about people in that. And I think that you're seeing now a return to maybe caring about people or a return to that focus. I think that's why La Barba's been so successful, is that we've always, always valued our customers above just about anything else. And so I think... I, I can't speak enough to the idea that every time a small high-end specialty shop snob shames a customer out the door, it hurts all the rest of the small high-end specialty shops. Yeah. You know, people, the consumer in the world doesn't view doesn't view an independent shop as an independent shop. They view independent shops as a separate culture. And so if they have a bad experience at one, they're less likely to go to any other, you know? And that's why they keep going back to chains because their local neighborhood Starbucks barista knows their name, recognizes their car when they're pulling up, has their drink waiting for them. I mean, that happens in small markets, not large markets. Has their drink waiting for them. Those types of things can't be, you know, they'll ask them about their day. I mean, like, those types of things can't be emphasized enough for what it takes to grow a successful business or have a successful career. I mean, people people are what really matter. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they say that through climate change, we might not have coffee in 50 to 100 years. So, you know, you need to create an identity for your business that exists outside of the product it sells because if one day that's gone, what have you got left, you know? I mean, if you've got a beautiful service model, you could be some other type of cafe or you could be a bar or you could, you know, but if you're just an asshole with good coffee, you know, then all that's left of the coffee's gone is an asshole, you know, like, <laughs> and it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, there's, there's a, there's a tendency for baristas to talk down to customers and lecture them and, and educate them. I mean, 
people don't want to be educated. Like, serve them the best thing you can serve them. Serve them the best way you can serve them. If you don't have what they want, find the kindest way to guide them to something else. And and don't tell them why they're wrong to like what they're like what they like. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, just because somebody likes a frappuccino every single day doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means that they have a sugar addiction, you know? Like, and, and it doesn't mean that they can't appreciate something really good, but if you make them feel uncomfortable or insecure about consuming that good thing, then they're just going to check out of the whole system, you know? Yeah. And it's going to become a cliche, a joke. It's going to be a funnier die video, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so, yeah, my advice to any barista who wants to start out on their own is really find kindness and warmth and, and bring that to your business because that's going to matter more than your product because you're going to make mistakes in the product. If you're roasting your own, there's a learning curve and it's a steep learning curve and and it's hard and some people never learn past a certain point and they never get better, you know? Yeah. And if you're serving other roasters, those roasters are going to make mistakes or you're going to bring in coffees that are the wrong fit for your potential customer. I mean, but at the end of the day, if they like you... They're going to keep coming back. And it doesn't have to... And then you need to grow that as as a cultural value in whatever you start because you can't be there all day every day either. And so you need to build that kind of warmth into the people you bring in to work for you as well, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tend to ramble or anything. You know? <laughs> um, so kind of describe... Or kind of tell the listeners where you guys are at, how they can find you. Oh yeah, where your locations are. Uh, you can you can easily find us uh, labarbacoffee.com. Um, make sure you put the coffee in there, otherwise you end up someplace entirely different. Uh, and so I, we we have a web store and we do reasonable amounts. I mean that that coffee if you order on the web store it's roasted and shipped. You know I mean it's fresh coffee and it's outstandingly good. Um, you know we're in Salt Lake City. Uh, we have a cafe in the Gateway Mall. If you're in Salt Lake, you'll know what the Gateway Mall is. Otherwise, it's this mall on the edge of the city that's gone through about three different identity changes over the last 20 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're also, uh, we opened a shop in uh, Draper, just right off the freeway on 134th South or so. Um Everybody knows that it's the Ikea exit, <laughs> but we go the opposite direction. Uh, that's a nice, beautiful little standalone shop out in the suburbs. Our uh, mission statement is good coffee for everyone, so we really do believe that, that we, can, we can put this anywhere and it's going to be successful. So those are our two retail locations. You can find us at Whole Foods locally in the Salt Lake area, Sprouts locally in the Salt Lake area, um, Caputo's Market. I can't say enough good things about Caputo's Market. They're a they're a, they, they're a deli that grew into a high-end specialty shop that's grown into a sister company distributing uh, the best charcuterie and chocolate the world can offer around the world. Um, and we're honored to be the only only coffee they serve, and they retail our beans in in quite large numbers. If you don't. If any of your listeners don't know about Caputo's Market in Salt Lake, you should look them up and look up a priori as well. A priori, if you've had a, a $10 plus chocolate bar of any sort anywhere at any sort of market in the United States, it was probably distributed through them and imported through them. So uh, amazing, amazing company. Um, you can find us at Harmon's, which is a local grocery store chain. Uh, and 
And, and honestly, I mean, we, uh, Pago, which is a fine dining restaurant, was the first client, wholesale client we had after my old shop. Um, and Scott Evans owns a small restaurant group here, and all of his restaurants serve our coffee. Um, so, yeah, uh, Thule Bakery, uh, local favorite. They're an outstandingly great. If you need a giant cinnamon roll that was made with love and passion, you know, uh, they've served our coffee for quite a few years. I'm going to neglect somebody, and I'm going to get angry emails from people saying, how come you didn't mention me? But, I, I mean, our wholesale portfolio is, is pretty hefty. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, if you look around, if you throw a rock in any direction in Salt Lake, you'll probably find somebody who, if they don't serve us, know about us, or, you know, can tell you where to find us. And If not, you're going to find another great local shop. I mean, we've just got a really good, friendly coffee community in Salt Lake that goes with a good history, too. I mean... Salt Lake Roasting Company, probably the lo- oldest roaster in, in Salt Lake, was uh, the first first roastery probably in the country to buy direct. The guy had done some missionary work in uh, with whatever group he's with, I can't remember, but um, in some various countries, developed relationships with coffee farmers and started buying direct in the eighties. You know, wow. so, so we've got a we've got a beautiful history of coffee culture in Salt Lake. So if you're looking around, please find La Barba. But if you don't find us, know you're going to find somebody awesome. So yeah, you know. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day and being on the Low Key Podcast. Thanks thanks for having me. Sorry I was a little off this morning. Like, <laughs> like I said, my brother-in-law came into town. We played Settlers of Catan with some whiskey. Uh, you know, <laughs> We were playing Catan last night. <laughs> <laughs> but was it accompanied by whiskey? You know, <laughs> That game got a little rowdy. <laughs> well, I'll see you next time. Thanks, definitely. <laughs>